on this Sabbath afternoon. I have some intimations to make before we commence public worship. Those that were not here this morning, um, we were successful in our application for a three-year work permit just last Friday, so we may thank the Lord for granting that. Uh, the prayer meeting evening has moved to Wednesday, so this coming Wednesday at 7.30 we continue with our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, uh, on God and the Holy Trinity. Our Thanksgiving service will take place on Monday, October 9th, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, at 10am in the morning. And the uh, up-and-coming um, visit by our interim session, that is the session or consistory appointed by the, the presbytery, that is of Reverend Gavin Beers and Elder Andy Taylor, which will take place on the weekend, a long weekend, commencing on Friday, October 20th. Um, the more information will be given next Lord's Day regarding the whole communion season and how that works. And all these announcements are subject to the sovereign will of Almighty God. Let me to call you to worship now and let us sing together from Psalm 30, 3 0. Psalm 30, and singing from verses 4 to the end. Psalm 30, singing from verse 4. Verse 4 O ye that are his holy ones, sing praise unto the Lord, and give unto him thanks when ye his holiness record. Verses 4 to 12 of Psalm 30, singing to the tune of Gerard.
Let us please stand to pray. O Lord Most High, Jehovah God, we give thee thanks that we may approach thee in prayer, we who are not worthy, and yet thou art worthy and to receive glory and honour and power and might forever and ever, to receive of our worship. And Lord, as we come at the very beginning of this time of worship, we pray for thy help that thou who deservest all love and praise and obedience, Lord, that thou would prepare our hearts that we would worship thee. Lord, that thou would take away the sin and stain of lip service and grant that we may from our hearts uh, praise thee, that we would worship thee even in the act of prayer, of reading the scriptures, of singing the scriptures, and of listening attentively uh, to thy word being preached. Will thou prepare hearts even now? Prepare them, Lord, that they would be as well prepared fields to receive the seed of the word. And may it please thee, O Lord, to water it by thy spirit. That the seed of God would enter in, that it would be planted, that it would grow and bear fruit. Lord, not just planted, but ingrafted. Lord, now would thou have mercy upon each and every one of us as we approach in the presence of the Most High God. So, as we gather in thy name, we who by thy grace know of the forgiveness of our sins, plead with thee uh, to cleanse us once again for Christ's sake. Because of him, O oh God, we pray for that fresh cleansing. We pray also for mercy to be granted to those in our midst who are outside of Christ. They have not their sins forgiven them. They are still thine enemy, and thy wrath is still upon them, as we have just sung, O oh Lord, without mercy. Remember the needs of the congregation. Remember those that need thy help in body, mind, Spirit, need help in families. We pray, O Lord, for strong families and strong marriages. We pray for protection, O Lord, from our own sinfulness and from Satan, from sin in the world. Lord, thou knowest how bold uh, sinners have become, even in these uh, past few years, uh, pleading for acceptance and tolerance and now attempting to subdue all under their godlessness. And so, Lord, protect us, protect especially our children. And, Lord, we look to thee to bless thy word to them also, that they may be saved even at a young age, and have a whole life of service unto thee. But, Lord, remember the old ones also. Lord, have mercy, we pray. Having heard thy word so often, and yet are hardened against it, May it please thee, O Lord, even today to soften the hearts of all, to show mercy and to bring salvation. Remember also the upcoming trip of our session to come over from the United States. Will thou grant a safe journey and a good time of fellowship together and especially 
at the time of communion, Lord, that it may please thee to help us, Lord, all to draw nigh, draw us nigh, Lord, even at that solemn and special time. I remember Mr. Logan Shelton as he is to be ordained to the gospel ministry and installed, Lord, there in our, our Auburn, Upper Lyca, Lord, in the U.S. Lord, will thou bless and help at this time. We thank thee once again for granting that three-year work permit. We pray, O Lord, that thou would grant blessing upon the ministry uh, from this pulpit and through this uh, church. We pray, therefore, also for the, the town of Nobleford. Lord, we pray for thee to have mercy. As we see, as we drive to church, how many people are absent-minded concerning the things of God. They have no knowledge, and if they have knowledge, they have no fear. And may it be pleased, O Lord, even to have mercy upon those that live in this town and in the outlying areas. And so that effect, Lord, we pray for the extension of thy kingdom, that thou would send thy spirit even to blow upon these rural areas and to have mercy upon many souls. Grant revival to thy ministers even in this area. Lord, that personal uh, reviving work of the Holy Ghost so that the word may go forth uh, with power that it would be a convicting and converting work of the Spirit of God. And may all things redound to the glory of Jesus Christ, even today, even as we are gathered in his name and in his presence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our consecutive reading of God's Word takes us to Genesis chapter 19. Turn with me then to Genesis chapter 19. We'll read the last portion of the chapter from verse 30, 30. Genesis chapter 19. Reading from verse 32, verse 38, the last verse of the chapter. Some sensitive issues in this uh, part of the Word of God, but we will read it in any case. Genesis 19 and from verse 30. And Lot went up out of Zohar and dwelt in the mountain daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. The firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us, after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father, let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. 
And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger she also bare a son and named his name Ben-Ami. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Amen. Take up your psalm books, please. To Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And singing together the first nine verses. Verses 1 to 9. Psalm 22. To the chief musician upon Ayaleth Shahar, a psalm of David. My God... My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why so far art thou from helping me, and from my words that roaring are? All day, my God, to thee I cry, yet am not heard by thee. And in the season of the night, I cannot silent be. Verses 1 to 9 of Psalm 22, singing to the tune of Bovine.
two readings from the scriptures this afternoon. The first is from the prophet Ezekiel and chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. After which we read some verses from John chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 18. Reading from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Ezekiel chapter 18, reading from verse 19. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 19. Yet say ye, why doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Yet ye say the way of the Lord is not equal, not fair. Here now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal, are not your ways unequal. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone, According to his ways, saith the Lord God, Repent 
and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, for which reason, turn yourselves and live ye. Amen. And turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Reading from verse 27 to the end of that chapter. And the preaching is from the final verse of chapter 3 of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 3, reading from verse 27 to the end of the chapter. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, but he that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Amen. Take up your psalm books once again and we sing Psalm uh, 80. Psalm 80 and verses 14 to 90. Psalm 80, 80. Singing verses 14 to the end. Psalm 80 and verse 14, O God of hosts, we thee beseech, return now unto thine, look down from heaven in love, behold, and visit this thy vine, this vineyard which thine own right hand hath planted us among, and that same branch which for thyself thou hast made to be strong. Verses 14 to the end of Psalm 80, singing to the tune of All Saints New. 
Just before we uh, pray for help in the preaching and hearing of the word, let me just read that verse once again, John 3, chapter 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Let us stand to pray, please. O most holy and most dread God, Thou Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we give Thee thanks for the means of grace that we have enjoyed this Sabbath afternoon already. And we now come to the time for the preaching of Thy Word, Thy, thy usual means of granting grace to sinners we do pray, O Lord, that Thou would be merciful to, unto us and close us in with Thyself, with Thy Word, that we would not be distracted, we would not be a distraction, that we would hear the Word attentively. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou would help us, grant us Thy fear, grant us thy, that spiritual hunger that we need, and that desire for the salvation of our souls. And will thou give that help, O Lord, that we would hear, and be not hearers only, walking away, but Lord, that we would be doers also, that we would hear the promises and the warnings, that we would believe them. Lord, that thou would save us. And we pray also, Lord, will thou help thy servant with this monumentous task, of bringing the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. And I'll give help, O Lord, and mercy. Grant me utterance, grant me strength in my mind, and in my mouth, and in my heart. And may the Word of God go forth, blessed by Thee, and conjoined with the Spirit of God to take that word and plant it into every heart. Will thou do so, Lord, that it may in due course bring forth the fruit of repentance, fruit of everlasting life. We pray thee in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So this afternoon we conclude uh, John the Baptist's uh, testimony regarding Christ that we see and there begun in verse 27. And John revealed in those few verses that we examined in the last couple of weeks in which we conclude this Sabbath afternoon that he understood who Christ was with a depth of knowledge that the disciples only really received after Pentecost, although they had been in the school of Christ for three and a half years. John had a clarity that they did not have. He clearly knew the Old Testament scriptures. He had studied them. He had prayed, upon, prayed over them. And I say that 
because he received from God a great clarity about the Redeemer yet to come and, and whose ministry he would foreshadow as the voice crying in the wilderness. That is certainly one of the reasons why Christ called him essentially the greatest of Old Testament prophets. He says in Matthew 11 and verse 11, he says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But now we see John the Baptist's testimony regarding Christ coming to a close. It will not be long before John is arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded. But his testimony regarding Christ now closes with a very simple black and white gospel message. A promise and a warning. Which gives us the title today of your burden and responsibility to believe. When you hear the promise and you hear the warning, you have a burden and a responsibility to believe both. And so in three points this afternoon, with the Lord's gracious help, we will see firstly a statement of truth. That is verse 36. Uh, secondly, a hope-giving truth, the first portion of verse 36. And then the second two-thirds of that verse is our third point, a fearful truth. A fearful truth, a statement of truth, a hope-giving truth, and thirdly and finally, a fearful truth. And let us commence then with a statement of truth, the whole of verse 36. We'll read once again. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John declares two truths to you this afternoon. Two truths. And these truths include all of humanity. All of humanity is divided by these words into two groups. Two groups. Firstly, group one, those that believe savingly. And group two, those that do not believe savingly. Quite simple, simple division. Those that believe unto salvation, those that don't believe unto salvation. And all of humanity has been split from the very beginning into those two groups. But notice with me neither the gospel writer, that is John of course, nor John the Baptist whose words he record, use any other words here than those of believe and not believe. The hidden things of God are not paraded before your eyes. They're not shown to you and not said to you in this verse either to confuse you or to discourage you or to frighten you because ultimately in judgment the responsibility for your sins and your unbelief is a personal one that we'll see more so in our final point. 
Two truths then that we see. Firstly, those that believe savingly. Those that have belief, that have faith, that believe in, that leave up, believe upon the Son of God. And no general vague faith, no, no wispy emotion, but a true gospel trusting in Christ and in his atoning and redeeming work. No belief in anyone else, else no belief in yourself, no belief in good works, no belief in any religion, no belief in any other way of salvation comes uh, into play here. It is only belief in the Son of God. Only he or she that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. The exclusive claims and demands of the gospel. Everything else and everything else, everybody else is clearly excluded. The one Redeemer that God has sent, the one Redeemer that has done that work of salvation, that was accepted in heaven, this one Son, this Son that conquered sin, death and Satan, only belief on this Son will save you. And how grievous it is when sinners are encouraged to go anywhere else other than to the Son, or be encouraged to rely on anything else other than the Son's work. No, it is the Son of God, and it is the saving work of the Son of God that we are to believe on, that you are to believe on. That's the first group. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And the second group within humanity, and remember there are only two groups. You can't hide yourself in a third group or a fourth group because they do not exist. Second group, those that do not believe savingly. Their faith does not save their soul. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. So contrasted there. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. So where the sinner does not believe the Son, does not believe in the words that the Son speaks, declares the Son to be a liar, therefore, it does not take serious the warnings of the Son, does not believe the revelation of the Son as the Son of God, when, when he says so, when he declares it, he says, I am, I am, uh, come, sent of my Father. And all the things that the Lord witnesses of himself in the Gospels are discounted. Maybe accepted as some religious fiction, but not taken as the truth of God, spoken by the Son of God. And therefore the things that he says about himself are not believed. And he says that he's the redeemer of sinners. And yet this people, this, this group too of humanity, says either I don't need redeeming, or he is insufficient for my, my redemption, or I can redeem myself. Things that are pertinently, clearly, obviously, and clearly contradicted in the Scriptures. You cannot save yourself. What was the point of the Lord sending his word to his people? Sending prophets early. Speaking betimes that, that they would turn from their sin and turn back to God. Because if they do not repent and they do not turn, as we saw repeatedly in Ezekiel. 
They will not be saved. They will die in their sins. However good they were, they've gone bad. They have turned to unbelief. Disbelieving God, which is calling God a liar, which is saying that the work of Christ is insufficient, is pathetic, cannot save a single soul, and certainly cannot save your soul. Or thinking that your sins are so great that even though all of the blood of Jesus sprinkled all over your body and soul would still not save you, discounting the eternal and divine value of that precious blood. Whatever excuses and lies you speak to yourself, you're calling God a liar. And so you disbelieve the atoning work of the cross. You don't believe that Christ has done everything perfectly and fully needed for salvation. And that's why you do not obey his commandments. You do not obey his commands to believe on him. You do not repent of your sin. And by not so doing, you cannot and you will not trust him to save you. Because really when we come to verse 36, especially having, having had that night visitation up to verse uh, 21 and the further things that are revealed uh, by John in the remainder of the chapter, we understand one thing most certainly, that unbelief in the Son of God is the most wicked of sins. And we can name many wicked sins. There are many wicked sins, sins that are Worse than others because they are a compound of sins. One sin is enough to damn your soul. But there are sins worse than others. But the worst one has to be unbelief in Christ and his gospel. A complete disregard not only for the truth that God has revealed and in sending his son to die that shameful death upon that cross but a wicked rejection of the good for your own soul. It's almost it's spiritual suicide that we have in this second group. And of that second group, those that have heard the gospel and still rejected God's most perfect way of salvation. Rejecting his way of salvation, rejecting God's own son, rejecting the atoning blood, a full-out rejection of the best and the greatest and the fullest that God could do for your soul. But John is not merely stating a theological truth, although this is, verse 36, is true theologically, absolutely. Because in speaking these, these two truths in verse 36, he gives two different messages. So we've seen firstly that it is a statement of truth. But not only a statement of truth, we move on to our second point, considering the first uh, part of that verse, the first clause, that it is a hope-giving truth. A hope-giving truth. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting Life. It is, it is a word to remember and a word to remind you that by trusting in God's Son, believer, you have passed from darkness to light, from death to life. 
You were dead to God. God was dead to you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You lived under the wrath of God. But now the change has taken place. You are alive to God and, and now to you, God is alive to you. Because life is found in the Son. And you have embraced the Son by repenting of your sins, by believing on the Son. And how did you come to the Son? Well, we know from the Scriptures there are many ways that are, the Lord will draw with cords of love the sinner to his Son. You may have consciously heard and then heeded the gospel commands to come to Christ, repent and believe. Or you have sat under the preaching of the Son and have been immediately granted new life. You were dead in one part of the sermon and live, alive in the next. Maybe even while re reading the word of God uh, privately and secretly, you have passed from darkness to life. Now life in the sun is still a life of struggle. Still a life of struggle against sin, against your own unbelief, against the world, against Satan. It is a life of struggle, but it is life. And as we considered this morning, even in all the trials and the strife of life, that the Lord is there for his own. That the Lord is a shield to protect his own. And not only that, with this new life, there is new joy. There is joy that has not been found in a bottle. It has not been found in any form of chemical. It is joy in the Holy Ghost. A joy that has been granted to you that even in the most difficult times of life and the darkest providence that the Lord may bring into your life, that there is still a joy. Or at least when it comes down to the to the most difficult matter and acknowledgement that there is a source for joy, although I feel it not at present. There is peace of conscience with God. There is a resting in the work of Christ. A new and different life has been granted and is still being formed even after the rebirth. And this new life is an eternal life. It is a never-dying life. It is an ever-existing life. It is life which is almost, almost an insufficient word to say, except to say that it is a new and everlasting life in the Son of God. We all think that we're alive and yet spiritually dead in trespasses and sins and yet when the Lord gives that new life it is an eternal life it doesn't start merely at the death of the body and say oh, when I die then I will enter into eternal life that is not what John is saying here he's speaking the very truth that at the rebirth eternal life begins eternal existence with God begins Eternal joy and eternal benefits begin at the rebirth. He that believeth on the Son hath now, hath everlasting life. Not shall have, 
will yet one day, if he's lucky, have the humbled and convicted and drawn sinner that casts his sins and his lot upon the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their sin and turning to him, obeying the gospel command, is born again. Well, he's born again, he's able to believe, he's able to repent. But you are to do so, that you would have everlasting life. It's yours. It's your possession forever. No one can take it away from you. Like so many of these other things that we consider, we considered this morning, they are a permanent change, they are a permanent gift, and the Lord is not taking it away from you. Hence the perseverance of the saints. A wonderful, comforting doctrine. That in spite of you, God saved you, that's election. In spite of you, God keeps you, that's perseverance. Because it all lies in Christ, it doesn't lie in you. You're never going to lose your salvation because you weren't as, as zealous as some other believer. It's gifted you. It cannot be taken away from you. The blood that's sprinkled on your soul will not be washed away. By what? Nothing. Indelible. Indelible atoning blood. And as we consider this morning the relationships that are granted, the many relationships that are granted and restored in the gospel to the sinner that believes and becomes the personal prized possession of God bought at a price, the blood of Jesus. And so everlasting life is granted you and and part of that everlasting life is all the other benefits that we consider at the moment of having that saving faith because you have Christ. You have his blood. You have forgiveness through his blood. You have adoption with his Father. You have his Spirit indwelling you. All the promises of God in Christ which are yea and amen. And at that moment is the beginning of everlasting life. Although on this now found narrow path and it may go up, and down, it may go left and right, it may be very difficult in places, and yet it's always pointing upwards. It will bring you in God's time and God's way up to heaven. It is not a broad road that leads unto destruction. So even though life may be difficult now, can we say it is the birth pangs of everlasting life, but you have life. As as the ovum, as the, as the egg in the womb, well, it's not even in the womb yet, as the egg in, in, in the fallopian tubes, that is, at it, as it is fertilized, life begins at that conception. As the egg conceives, um, is conceived and is fertilized, life begins at that moment. And as there is new life in the soul of the sinner that is converted to Christ, there is new life at that moment. Yes, there is still life of formation. There is still growth from, of that little tiny um, one-celled and then very quickly two-celled being, but it's still a baby. And as it will grow, it still has life and it will grow and we have the usual nine months of gestation and then there is the birth. But that baby still lives, God willing, all being well according to the usual order of things. And so life has its very beginning, but that life is to continue. And spiritually speaking, that's what we see. 
There is so much good has been done to that soul by the work of Christ and by the application of his spirit that everlasting life has begun at that moment and will yet be brought to full fruition. At death, yes. At the resurrection, yes, even more so. But it begins even now. Because if you're found in Christ and Christ is the source of all life, then your life is found in him. Regardless of your weaknesses, regardless of the strength of your flesh, regardless of the hatred of the world, you have received the gift of everlasting life because you have received the greatest gift of all, and that is the Son of God. A word to remember and a word to remind those that by grace have been saved. But it's also, secondly, a word of encouragement to repent. A word of encouragement to repent. Because when you are hearing this twofold message by John, and you hear that there are two groups in the whole of mankind, and you think to yourself as you hear, and you're being serious with your own soul, and you realize, I'm not in the first group. A preacher, I must be honest, I'm not in the first group. I, I, I find myself in the second group. I probably made a third group for myself, but it doesn't exist. You find yourself in the second group. group that does not believe on the Son and does not have life, even now, does not have life. And you hear again, though, that the Son is given and in him there is peace and there is joy and there is everlasting life. You hear the promises of the gospel again, even though you know yourself condemned by the same truths of the gospel. You hear also that death is removed from them that turn away from being dead in trespasses and sins. And that that new life is in the Son, that everlasting life. And therefore, you are guilty of exercising unbelief. Exercising unbelief. You are not believing, not just an absence of faith, it is that, but it's also an exercising of unbelief. And so you are to stop making your ears deaf to the good news. You are to stop turning a blind eye to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are to believe on the Son. And you may say, and I've heard it myself, that the gospel cannot be that simple. God's not expecting anything from you. There's nothing to be found in you. There's nothing that you bring to the table. No, the gospel was impossible. And therefore it took an infinite and eternal and merciful God to come up with this great plan of salvation. And a plan of salvation that wasn't solved with just paying a hundred dollar fine. But meant that his son, the eternal son of God, ever the joy of the father, was to become in the form of sinful man, to be incarnated, to live, suffer 33 and a half years. Sinful and wicked religious people around him all day, every day. And then walk to the cross and have himself nailed as the Lamb of God, to be humiliated, to be broken, to put himself under the wrath of God, as we read about in verse 36. 
the rage and the wrath of God, of a righteous God over sin poured out upon him, onto his body and onto his soul, so that he died. But he had no sin. How can he die? He cannot die. The wages of sin is death and he had no sin. So how could he die? Again, another impossibility. God becoming man is one thing. And then the God-man dying. How are these things impossible? How are these things possible? They are not. Except that he takes all the sins of all his people that they have ever committed and puts them upon himself. Pour out thy wrath, Father, upon me. And I will stand in their place. And I will die in their place. And three days later I will rise up ahead of them. New life, everlasting life given to all those that put their trust in Christ. And the more that you look at the details and the more you try to understand the true biblical way of salvation and what God has done to save wicked sons and daughters of Adam, that he would have a, a people for himself, that he would have children to himself, that he have a, would have a bride to Christ, the more you see the impossibility for man to do anything, anything that was good, anything to, to even get a look of favor from God. Couldn't. That's why we talk about grace. The undeserved favor of God to the undeserving. No one deserves grace. I know so many people think that they do secretly in their heart. I go to church twice on the Lord's Day and I give my money and, I'm, and I, prepare, I, I try to be very, very good living. None of which, none of which, none of which catch the favor of God. None of which. In fact, they increase the wrath of God upon the unsaved soul. But God has done the absolute impossible. That which was impossible for us. That which was impossible according to the natural realm that he had created. God becoming man. God dying. The dead rising from the dead. Ascending up into heaven, ever living to make intercession for his people. God has done all that is impossible, which is why the biblical gospel is so simple. What are you to do? Obey what God says, because God has done everything. That which is impossible, God can do and God has done. You cannot rail against works of righteousness in one hand and the other hand say, I've got to do this, I've got to experience this, I've got to have gone through this. Jesus has done it all. The Lord has done all the suffering that is necessary. We are to preach Christ and him crucified. Not the sinner pained by conviction and so God sent his son and his God finished and his sons finished that work of redemption and then God has sent out preachers throughout the whole world through the great commission and he established this church a hundred and eight years ago brought you in here this afternoon 
proper gospel preacher into the pulpit so that you could hear the gospel. God has done all things. He brings Christ before you in the preaching. And what are you to do? He doesn't demand preparatory work. And say you've got to do this first and that first. Beyond repentance and faith. And the repentance and faith is coming to Christ in faith. Outside of coming to the means of grace and obeying God's word, there is nothing you can do to prepare yourself for grace. I do not say when I say that as thing against praying and reading the uh, scriptures and studying them and reading books that point you to Christ. But those things are to bring you to faith and not merely to fulfill and not merely to fill your time while you refuse to repent and believe while you wait for God to do something more than he has already done. What more has God, does God need to do to save a soul? He's done it all. And therefore finding yourself in one group out of the group of unbelievers and while you're still alive you are to call upon his name. Call upon the completed work of Christ. Call upon God in the name of the completed work. Repent, believe on his son, and he will take you out of the group of unbelievers written up to everlasting damnation and bring you into the kingdom of his son, into the group of believers. And thirdly, and our final point is this, a fearful truth. A fearful truth. As we consider this together, a fearful truth. That last part, or the last two-thirds of verse 36. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him. John the Baptist now preaches to the unbeliever when he declares these points to us and there are three painful facts to all that do not and will not believe on the Son. And the first one he says is that you have death and you do not have life. You shall not see eternal life, but you have exposed your soul to everlasting death. And your physical death does not mean that your body will rest in the grave. What it means, and this is what you must understand, yes, the body may temporarily rest, but the soul will know no rest. The soul will immediately be cast into hell. And it will remain in hell until the final judgment. But also notice that you will not see the Son. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, Christ is the life. There is no glorious look at the Saviour as he cast into hell. No look at the, at the sun before your soul is put into that place of punishment. And hell, of course, is a temporary place of punishment. It's a temporary place of punishment until 
the day of judgment. And at the day of judgment, everybody will be resurrected, the damned and the redeemed. They will all be resurrected, but the damned, they will go body and soul into the eternal lake of fire. A place for the everlasting destruction of the body and of the soul. And the scripture uses various terms. One of the terms is outer darkness. Being cast into outer darkness. Matthew 25 and verse 30 is one of the verses in the New Testament from the lips of the Savior himself where he he makes it very clear. He says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of of, of teeth. And the self-same phrase is used by the Lord for baptized churchgoers, for circumcised Israelites that also die in their sin and their unbelief. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all of church is church. There are plenty in the church that may do their best on the outside to look as if there's something good about them, but their soul is still an enemy of God. The Lord says, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of darkness. Often when people have the idea of hell or the eternal lake of fire, they think of of, of bright glowing flames. But even, even the comfort of light is removed. Every comfort is removed. Every mercy of God is absolutely removed. There is no mercy, there is no grace, there is no long-suffering. Those three are removed. A place of darkness for the body and for the soul. Even the flames are black and the soul and the body will suffer such pain. There will be weeping and the teeth will gnash with agony. Another expression that the Lord says, Mark 9 and verse 44, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So an example of, of, the, of the everlasting destruction and the wrath of God on the inside and on the outside. And so ever dying in agony, but never dying, never resting in death, never finding peace from the torment. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked, says Isaiah. Because a holy God sees you as you truly are, having taken away, as I said, the mercy and the grace and the long-suffering that you enjoy in this life, even the beauty that you have of character and the beauty of body and and the abilities, uh, the, the, the talents, we might say, is all removed. And what is left from an unbelieving sinner that delights in sin and despises God. What can be said? What is left when the Lord has stripped that all from that person? There is still hate. There is a fermenting anger against God. There is blasphemy upon their lips. Barely a devil is left over. When it comes down to the very essentials of your being, 
You have given yourself over. You are in Adam given over to the devil and you yourself have given yourself over to the devil and unto sin and unto unbelief, rejecting the blood of Christ and staying in your sin. And what is God to do with you? A good God, a merciful God, a kind God, a God that has blessed you day in and day out and every single minute of your existence has granted you blessing upon a blessing. And for those who have heard the gospel, who attend a church where the Bible is opened and preached from, what more responsibility do you have before God as he's revealed his son and he's revealed his way of salvation and how much he has did to his son in order to save a people? So you have death, you do not have life. And you have wrath, you do not have peace. And so as everlasting life for the beginner begins at faith in this life, and is the same for the believer, God's wrath has already started in this life. The wrath of God abideth on him. It, it stays upon him. We could say it lives on him. The word in the Greek we would translate these days as remaining. It remains. It does not move from him. There's no way that the wrath of God can ever be removed from a sinner who is not washed in the blood of the Lamb and is not wearing the righteousness of Christ. What is the wrath of God? We can talk about it, we can have these words in our head, we're familiar with the words, and yet have we really taken time to consider what the, what the wrath of God is? And we could spend a long time considering it, but let me just say it's three things. It's God's righteous anger over sin. It's God's righteous anger, well we can include hatred there. It's God's righteous anger and hatred over sin and sinners. It's God's curse upon sins, upon sinners because of their sin. God's wrath is also God's forsaking and rejecting the soul that sins. It, it, it's, it's the exact opposite of what the atonement does. The atonement brings at one, brings together enemies. But God's wrath keeps them apart. And so God's righteous displeasure over your unrepented sin and your God-hating pride and your rejection of Christ will torment you forever. And that's what it all comes down to, that he that believeth not. He that believeth not is these things. It doesn't sound pleasant to hear, but it is true. You have unrepented sin. You have not turned away from that which is an offence to God, which is, as it were, a middle finger up to heaven, stuck out. And in, the, in, in an unrepented human pride, there is love for self and hate to God, so a God-hating pride. And in not repenting and believing, in having heard something of the gospel, you reject the Christ of the gospel. And so God will torment you forever and ever 
for these clear crimes against him. You say, why does it go on forever and ever? Well, because God is eternal and against an eternal God you have sinned. Secondly, why does the punishment against the unrepentant sinner go on forever and ever? Because after this life, there is no more grace for the unrepentant sinner. The soul goes into hell, the resurrected soul and body go into the eternal lake of fire, but there is no grace, there is no day of grace anymore. There is no way that they could repent. There's no way that they could believe. There is no blood offered to the soul in hell. So you are not to toy with a righteous and holy and wrath-filled God, and you are not to toy with your very precious and never-dying soul. But those in group two do. And some of them give God the blame for not saving them. That is adding blasphemy to blasphemy. You have death, you do not have life. You have wrath, you do not have peace. And thirdly, and finally, you continue to sin grievously by your unbelief. Nowhere in the scriptures are you commanded not to believe. There's nowhere in the scriptures where you are told by a faithful prophet of the Lord that you are not to believe. And nowhere in the scriptures are you encouraged not to believe. You're not commanded not to believe. You're not encouraged not to believe. There's no good example giving in scripture of those that do not believe. And in fact, the scriptures continually discourage from unbelief. Unbelief, as it were, is like a spiritual infectious disease. And it must be dealt with. If you had an infectious disease in World War I, for example, in World War I, the soldiers would be in the trenches, and the trenches, they were in Europe, they were full of rain, they were full of water, they were full of rats. And, and so the, the, they would get something called trench foot. They would get an infection under the in the toes, under the toenails, and the infection would not go away because they were walking around in, in muddy and infected water all the time. And so what would the doctor then do? He had to deal with this man with his toes started turning black. And if he did not chop off those toes in time, the foot started turning black. If he did not chop off the foot in time, the leg would start turning black. This is something called gangrene, that, that the flesh is dying while it's still on the body. And it stinks. And it's, it's dreadfully painful. And in many ways, that's what unbelief is, is like to the soul. It just keeps on growing and it keeps on growing and it, and it must be cut off by repentance and faith at some point. Lest the whole of your being be consumed and you're only good for the fire. So you're persistently discouraged from not Believing and discouraged from not sinning. We read it in Ezekiel. Chapter 18 and verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You do not bear the iniquity of your father. Your father does not bear your iniquity. Each will bear the iniquity of their own soul. The prophet Isaiah brings the same gospel warning. The same Emphasis 
of personal responsibility for sin. Isaiah 3 and verse 10 and 11. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. And that personal responsibility, that, that personal blameworthiness, that, that personal guilt for sin is again emphasized by the Lord in Luke 12. And, and that's in the context, in the parable of the faithful and the wise steward. I take it you know it. And that concerns specifically preachers and elders. But it speaks about all within the church as well. Luke 12, 47 and 28, the words of Christ himself. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, that is the, uh, the, 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 the strike of the whip, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given... Of him shall be much required, and to him men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Again, so we have, we have the general responsibility of those in the world, but now specifically within the church, with much knowledge is given much responsibility. You cannot walk out of the church having heard the gospel and say, well, I'll just wait because God does not say so. He says, while it is today, you are to repent. You are to believe. While it is today, you have no promise of tomorrow. But today, you are responsible for your sin before God. And David makes the same thing clear in that great psalm of repentance and contrition, Psalm 51. Specifically, verse 4, he says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. In other words, every sin that we commit, although it involves another person, it involves ourselves, ultimately every sin is against God and therefore God can judge every sin sin and in judging sin he judges those who are personally responsible for their sin not for their father's sin not the father for the son's sin but for their very own sin judge for those things that we've committed the sins of commission judge for those things that we've omitted to do the sins of omission if we do not believe the gospel is a sin of omission we have omitted to repent and to believe and we'll be judged and condemned for that also. And because we will be judged, we must not die in our sins. We must not die unbelievingly. For you to die means that you must have your sins washed away. You must have peace with God before you dare go near the grave. Before you dare go anywhere near that, 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 that illness, you, you must be prepared today to meet your maker. 
Not next year, not in 20 years' time. As I said, you have no promise of tomorrow. You must be ready, prepared to meet God at any time. And so God's wrath must be removed from you. You must be born again. And the only way of obtaining this is, as we understand from the scripture, the only way of accessing salvation is by repenting. It's turning away from your sins. Turning away from your unbelief. And believing the good news of Jesus Christ as it is revealed and that is commanded in the scriptures. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. May God bless these truths to your never-dying soul. Amen. Let us please stand to pray. O Most High God, we have considered some very solemn truths from thy word. That thou art not a God that we should trifle with or toy with. That our sins are not something to be suffered to continue in our flesh and in our person. That where we are guilty, O God, we must repent and have that guilt washed away. Have the sins removed, that thy wrath would be turned away, that we would have everlasting life set before us and not everlasting death. Lord, thou knowest the various states of souls here. Those who have everlasting life, those who have everlasting death, thou knowest also confusion, uncertainty, the lies with which we deceive ourselves. Thou knowest all these things. And Lord, salvation is impossible for man who can be saved. And yet with God shall all things be possible. And so we call upon thy name. And pray, O Lord, for thee to have mercy upon each and every one of us, especially those who are outside of Christ. Lord, that we may know that drawing work of the Holy Ghost, and not that we are to sit still, not whether to wait for anything extra from God, because God has done it all and given it all, but that we would obey the word of God, not being hearers only, but doers also, and that we may have our never-dying souls saved, that the wrath of God will be removed, that will be peace with thee. We pray thee these things in the name of thy Son, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Amen. Let us take up our psalm books. Psalm 144. After we sing the psalm, we'll say grace for the refreshments afterwards, downstairs. And then we'll close with the benediction. Everyone is invited.
to enjoy those refreshments downstairs. Psalm 144, verses 9 to 15. So it's 9 to the end of the, of the psalm. Psalm 144, 144, verse 9. A new song I to thee will sing, Lord, on a psaltery. I on a ten-stringed instrument will praise us, sing to thee. Even he it is that unto kings salvation doth send, who, who his own servant David doth from hurtful sword defend. Verses 9 to the end of the psalm, Psalm 144, uh, singing to the tune of St. Peter.
Let's please say grace before we receive and give the benediction. Merciful God, we do thank Thee for the good things for our soul we have enjoyed in this time of public worship. And we thank Thee, Lord, for the good things that Thou providest for our bodies also and for this time of fellowship. May it please Thee, O Lord, to bless those things that Thou most kindly hast given us for the strength of our bodies. We pray for a blessing to be granted to our time of fellowship also. We pray Thee in the name of Thy Son. Jesus Christ. Amen. And receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.